The lectionary brings us today to one of the most well-known and most beloved parables in the Bible, uh, parables of Jesus, and that is in Luke 10, and it's the parable of the Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will re reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, this is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, and it's a wonderful parable. Just from a sheer exegetical point of view, it really is interesting, and it shows a lot about Jesus' teaching style and how he encountered people who maybe weren't thrilled to have him around. And so we get a theoretical question here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But more importantly, the theoretical question, and who is my neighbor? and a very practical application in response to that question. You know, I talked very early about, I'm sure everyone remembers maybe six, seven months ago, when I talked about how important questions were. I'm sure you all were on your edge of your seat that day. But this shows how, how important asking the right question is again. And Jesus helps this lawyer ask the right question. And that answer becomes an existential test. So we're launched into this parable has launched untold mission projects, hospital, care for orphans, the aged, the hurting homeless. How many places do you know are good Samaritan homes? Samaritan home for the aged, Samaritan home for the homeless, all those kind of things. And so this, this parable has just been a launching of, 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 of centuries of good deeds. The challenge for us is not what do we do uh, with, with Jesus' parables and how we often treat them. We often make Jesus' parables just sweet, nice stories. Oh, isn't that a sweet story? This one especially, such a sweet story. But the parables are really very challenging. And quite often, and especially this one, is really counterculture. And it was really a very challenge in terms of how Jesus was encountering this lawyer. And it became a very deep and a very uh, uh, sincere and a very serious encounter. You see, the parables are about us. And they were about the lawyer. And they're about us still today, and they have application. 
So the story begins, it's a, a, about being nice and helping others, and we often think about it that way. Oh, you're supposed to be nice, and you're supposed to help others, and, and that feels so good, and if you want it, it can be a slap at the religious elite occasionally, you know, that kind of makes you feel good too. Yeah, those priests and those Levites, those religious elite kind of take a slap at them, you know, they're, they're all just kind of hypocrites anyway, and so it takes a slap at them, and so you can get that kind of take from this parable. But Jesus really is telling this story not about doing good deeds, but he's telling it in response to a question about life and life eternal. That's deep stuff. So he says, to inherit eternal life, the lawyer replies, you have to love, your, love God with all your heart, we know that, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus' response to the lawyer as he gets the lawyer to give the answer is really about how to inherit eternal life. And his response to the lawyers is obviously interesting. Uh, how does it read to you? But look, the lawyers have learned man and the law. He knows the law. He's not, he's not some guy just walking along and, hey, I've never heard of this before. This guy actually trains in this. He makes his living talking about the law. So Jesus, basic, Jesus is basically saying back to the lawyer when the guy says, uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is basically saying, Come on, Come on, you're the, the smart, smart guy, guy here. You know that. that. Why, don't Why don't you tell, tell me what it is? is? How do you read it? And so, so Jesus, Jesus is putting it back on the lawyer. Let's not play games here. I don't know what you're wanting, but uh, what do you see? And, 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 and so the guy really isn't asking Jesus a sincere question. He really is just trying to trick Jesus, test Jesus, maybe showing everyone that he's the smartest guy in the room. Well, the lawyer looks foolish here, if you notice that. He's been forced into answering his own question. And it kind of looks foolish because everyone knows this guy's the lawyer. He's the guy that knows his stuff backward and forward. And now he's having to answer his own question. And as Jesus so often does, as he does several times in this parable and in many of his parables, he turns the table on the lawyer. The lawyer goes from testing Jesus to being tested himself. And then Jesus grades the answer. Well, you've answered correctly. So, so he, he becomes, becomes the one in authority. The lawyer's trying to be an authority. Instead, Jesus, Jesus becomes an authority and says, you got it right. Don't, Don't you hate that when someone tells you, well, I, I think you finally understand. understand. Right? What, what do you mean I finally? I knew it all along, right? We, we hate those kind of things. things. But, but that's, that's what, what Jesus, Jesus did. did. Jesus is basically saying to the lawyer, why don't you practice what you preach here? You know, this is what it's about. He says, do this and you're going to live. And he will say later in the parable, go and do likewise. He's saying to the lawyer, look, we all know the answer here. Let's not pretend the issue is, what are you doing? And so then the lawyer, knowing that he's looking foolish, the lawyer seeks to justify himself, and now he does ask a serious question. And he's trying to put a real barb into this encounter he's having with Jesus by saying, ah, so Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now that's a very serious question in the first century in, in, in the Middle East and Israel. It's a real serious issue in Jesus' day. Who is my neighbor? Because we have been taught that eternal life comes with loving our neighbor as well as loving God. And so you have this real issue of who is a neighbor and who is not a neighbor. What does Jesus often get criticized for? Who he eats and drinks with. Some scholars believe that table fellowship was really one of the key drivers of Jesus being crucified. Why those religious leaders wanted to have him crucified he ate and drank with the wrong people. 
He made people his neighbor who we all know are not our neighbors. And so you realize that the question, who is my neighbor, implies immediately that there's someone who is not my neighbor. There is the possibility of a non-neighbor. So you have this whole dynamic going on from a quick little test he was giving to Jesus to now a very serious question that people live and die over in the first century. And as in most stories, and definitely this one, where Jesus begins to tell and tries to illustrate what's going on, and it isn't the characters, is it not, that the story really gets made up? You always got to look at the characters. It's the character we identify with quite often that determines uh, what the message is that we will take from the story. So depending which character I identify with, I get this message from the, letter, uh, from the, the story. Or I get another one if I identify with another part of the character or another character inside the story. So we have first character is the lawyer. Now, let's not be too negative on this lawyer. He may be a seeker of truth. We don't know. He's definitely wanting to put things right. He's going to make sure that Jesus is getting this right. He's a lawyer. He's trying to, if nothing else, maybe he's trying to protect the, protect the crowds that are coming around Jesus in case Jesus doesn't have this right. He wants to protect them because Jesus has been acting a little strange by now, we realize. A little odd, doing things and who he eats and drinks with. He hasn't been getting this right. So, so this lawyer stepping up and saying, look, I'm, I'm going to take care of the community here. And so, so he may have some righteousness about him, or, or he may want just recognition and position. He may really be showing, wanting to show everybody he's the smartest one in the room. But we do know he is seeking to justify himself because he has been made to look foolish. Now, not many people want to identify with the lawyer. I won't ask for a show of hands, because I don't think anyone would raise that. But being Jesus' foil is never usually a good place to be. All right, so, so if you're going to identify with someone, try not to identify with the ones who are Jesus' foil. And yet there are times, is there not? Uh, there are times that, that God, our faith, asks of us things we really don't like. We want to justify ourselves in that we don't want to know WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? I don't want to know sometimes what Jesus would do, because I don't want to do that, right? Who cares? I'm, that's not what I want to do. And so, so the lawyer is here, someone that we don't identify with, and yet sometimes I behave like the lawyer. I behave like the lawyer. The lawyer is beginning to try to ask Jesus here, well, are you a disciple of the law? And more deeply, he's asking, who is this guy, Jesus? And I often find myself asking those questions, do we not? Who is this guy, Jesus? What does he want to be? I don't, I don't want, want WWJD in my life. I want what Gary wants to do. What would Gary do? Let's pursue that for a while and see how that works out. Usually doesn't work out well, by the way. Uh, for those of you who followed me and stood up this morning, it usually doesn't work out well when you're not supposed to. You have to be careful with that. But he's asking that. So we don't want to identify with the lawyer, and yet sometimes I act like the lawyer. Now, the second character comes around in our story here, and it, it's the man who's attacked. Seemingly a helpless man. Uh, he's coming from Jerusalem. We know that. Now, there are people who teach that this traveler is really a foolish guy. You do not travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho by yourself. And in fact, it's his fault that he got beat up. If you're foolish enough to go down that road by yourself, you're going to get beat up and you're going to lose all your stuff. 
And so this guy is not just as uh, helpless and, 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 and innocent as he seems. He brought them on this on himself, some people would argue. Uh, it doesn't say this, but he's probably a Jew. And he probably lived in that. He probably should have known better, right? But we do know one thing about him now. He's in need of help. And while he's laying there in the ditch on the side of the road, we wonder, is he feeling abandoned? And as the priest and the Levite walk by, even though he's a Jew, you get, is he feeling abandoned by God? I mean, if God's own leaders, God's own people won't touch him, maybe God won't touch him. And maybe he believes that only God can help him. At this point, he's so close to death that there's no other hope for him. All those things might be going on with him. And so, and so my, my guess, guess is that, that he's open to any kind of help he can get. And even though he's probably a Jew, he seems to be open to the help of a Samaritan. Now, in normal day, that would not be the case. That would not be what we want to do. So do you wonder about this guy? How do you think he tells the story a year later about being attacked? How do you think he tells the story? Do you think he says to his friends sitting around having a uh, 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 Seder dinner together, do you think he tells them that, um, yeah, Samaritan saved my life. Did ever tell you about that story? Do you think he goes that far? You know, I, I was a real victim here. I really got beat up, and, and, and grace came into my life, and it, believe it or not, it came through a Samaritan. You know, he has the power to tell the story the way he wants. I like, I like to tell those stories the way I like them told. And I don't know what he does here, but we do know he's in trouble, and it's a Samaritan who bails him out. You know, we tell the truth of our lives and the stories we tell. You want to know the truth of someone's life? Listen to the story they're telling you. They're not always about them, but they're telling you the things that influence them, the things they think are important. And so it's interesting here, we have a Samaritan, and I'm just curious, not a Samaritan, but a man who's been beat up, and I'm curious about how he tells his story later on. Well, now we have also the priest and the Levite. We're going to put them together. They're in the same, kind of same group there. Um, these are the least popular characters for identification. If you're identifying with them, we should talk. Uh, they are hypocritical. They're self-righteous. I love the line that Paul uses with Timothy. They hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. Have nothing to do with such people, Timothy. Those aren't good people to hang around. These aren't good people to hang around. You know, there's a wonderful line, I'm sure you've heard it before. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. We're told that they probably don't want to touch him because it would defile them ceremoniously. Now, I think they're going from Jerusalem too, so maybe their, uh, maybe their duty in the temple is over by now, but they don't want to get themselves unclean in any way. And so we're going we're gonna to do what God wants us to do, which is not touch this man, not let any blood touch us. So we're going to do what God wants us to do, and then it'll all be okay. You know, you know, people, people who believe, believe their theological and cultural concepts and ideas are justified are really interesting. When we know those things about it, my theology is just, it's just right. I know it is. How I live my life, my culture, and how I partake in life, it's just right. My ideas are right. I just know they are somehow. I'm sure it's been given by God, but I'm, I just know they're right. Don't we get that way sometimes? For the priest and the Levite following the law, this is the norm for them. This is their life. This is their culture. It is clear to them that strangers and aliens and those who get themselves into precarious situations are to be dealt with by the law. Don't touch them. If we don't do that, you know what happens? 
all of society collapses. It just goes to hell in a handbasket. It's horrible. So we've got to keep going the way we're supposed to go. That's where the priests and Levites are. That's kind of what they're thinking. Mercy, you can't get into this mercy business too much. It'll just undercut all the good that we've established here and all the work for us. Yeah, we could go over and touch this guy, but man, everything we believe would just be thrown out the window. Our national identity, even our religious identity, is more important sometimes than our common identity as children of God. That's what the priest and the Levite kind of represent here. Jesus' ideals are noble, are they not? But they're just not practical. Come on, let's get real. We need laws to protect us from strangers. Strangers in the ditch especially. Even if we were once one of them. So that's a couple of characters that I recommend you not try to identify with. Uh, they're not the noble ones here. And then we have the Samaritan. Now it's interesting. Tell me the name of this parable. The Good Samaritan. Anyone ever read this carefully? Where does the word good come in? What do we mean when we say good Samaritan? Oh, he's a good X, a good Y, a good Z, the exception to the rule. No Samaritan could ever be good. So we have to label this guy. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says it's a Samaritan. And he is our hero. I like to think this would be us. We would be the Samaritan. And I think for many, we would be. That in fact, we do see this need and we see the, the wanting to reach out. But you know the reality is, rarely do we have the opportunity or the resources to be such heroes. I've not run into anyone that's been beat up in a long time on the side of the road. Maybe never as far as I know. Uh, and so I don't know how I would get the opportunity to do that. I'd like, I'd like to think, to think that, that I would be helpful if I could. I believe that you would. I truly do. I'm not being facetious now. I truly believe that you care for other human beings and you would find a way to reach out to them. But, but we just don't have that opportunity very often. But there are traits we can learn from the, from the Samaritan. First, he's courageous. He risks to do what is right. A Samaritan touching a Jew, even one that needs his help, it's a risky business. Someone could come along and the Samaritan would have real trouble. It's interesting, isn't it? He's prepared for the opportunity. He has what he needs. He's prepared his life for what he needs to do here. Also, he obviously is a trustworthy person in that when he goes to the inn, he says, here, have some money. And if this isn't enough for taking care of the guy while I'm gone, when I get back, I'll pay you more. He's trusted. Obviously, he's built relationships that are trustworthy and friendly. I'll pay you when I return. Also, he knew what it felt like to be excluded. He had a common humanity with someone in the ditch. He knew what it like, felt like to be excluded, so he was willing to include. He was not jaded by how he'd been treated so long by the Jews. He was not judgmental. He simply said, I'm here. I have an opportunity to help. I'll do it. Blessed are those who don't get jaded even when they're treated poorly who still want to encounter humanity and be a part of that answer of helping people. There's one other keeper, uh, uh, one other character in the story that we often overlook, and that's the innkeeper. You know, he's the actual caretaker for the one who was attacked. Think about it for a moment. Now, the, 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 the Samaritan stays here one day, 
cares for him, gives him money, and it is the care, it is the innkeeper who's going to provide the care ongoing. The Samaritan is the hero on the spot, no doubt. He's the enabler, but it is the innkeeper who does most of the caretaking. Augustine says about this parable that what the innkeeper does, this is the work of ministry. God brings to us, puts in front of us, those in need of God's love, and we are to care for them and make God's love come alive for them. Augustine said, this is what I, what all of us are doing, we are performing the duties of the innkeeper. So think about what innkeepers do for a minute. They provide hospitality. They make you feel welcome. Gail and I have a friend, we have a favorite restaurant called uh, Cleveland Heath over in Edwardsville, and some of you have been there with us, and, and uh, there was owners before the current owners that we knew really well, we got to be dear friends with them, and I don't know, dear friends, we got to be friends. And, and I would watch, we would go in there way too often, like two or three times a week, because nobody wanted to cook at our house, and, and, and we would go in, and I watched Carrie, who was one of the co-owners. Now, Keith were all the business part, but Carrie was out front. She was running the front of the house. Caring is so gifted with hospitality. One of the reasons we love that restaurant is we were treated so well. We came in and, Gary, Gail, hi, great, good to see you. Let's find you a table. Let's find you. You can sit here, whatever you want to do, right? What do you need? So good to see you. We've missed you for the last two days because you haven't been here for two days. Uh, that's one of the reasons they knew us, I'm sure. But, 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 and, and she just had this warmth and she made you feel warm and kind and well, how's the food? And if it's not just right, we're going to make it right for you and all of that. Now, what's interesting, I like to think that Gail and I are uniquely special, right? Maybe not. I watched Carrie. She treated everyone who came into that restaurant that way. Whether it was the first time you'd ever been there or the hundredth time you'd been there, she treated everyone that way. She was gifted. People felt at home in that restaurant. She made them feel at home. She provided hospitality that made you feel warm and good. That's what an innkeeper does. The hospitality is in just the hallmark of an innkeeper. And Augustine says hospitality is the hallmark of a faithful person. Caring for people. Making people feel welcome. Making people feel special and warm. The, the, the innkeeper models generosity as a practice of the heart. Carrie, I'm, I'm sure, sometimes had to be just worn out when we got in there. Restaurant business is a hard business. She had to be worn out, and yet you were made to feel welcome. It was a practice of her heart to be generous with her time. An innkeeper, that model of generosity, gives grace and exudes graciousness to all those around him. And that's what we're to do as the innkeeper. The innkeeper also provides the guests with a safe haven. To explore, in this sense, how God might call and use them. That's what a church should be. A place of hospitality that provides a safe haven to think about your own faith in ways that can be challenging at times. John's got us looking at what the canon of the Bible is. He has us taking books out of the Bible. My goodness gracious, John. What are you doing? Well, the leadership team will be meeting tomorrow night. But, 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 uh, but learning... Learning from one another, growing, exploring our faith. Helping people find how God might call and use them. An innkeeper invites guests to tell their stories. Now, I apologize for what I'm about to say, but this is all Gail's fault. We occasionally would sit at, like most of the time, sit at the bar at this restaurant. Um, and we like to sit at the bar while we ate 
because you heard all the stories. The barkeepers were there, the people around you were eating. We met people, we heard stories. Sometimes we heard stories that made us go, oh, I don't know about that. Other times we heard warmth of people caring for families and doing those kind of things. We're to invite people to tell their stories. That's the work of an innkeeper. What's the person's story? How has God uniquely touched their life? How has God uniquely worked with them? What God might be doing? You know what an innkeeper also does, though? Smart innkeeper, a smart barkeeper, they keep secrets. Not everyone has to know about the attack and that he was foolish to be out on that road. Just that you had a guy who was a victim here. And so innkeepers, and that is our role, we keep secrets. And we don't shame people for their secrets. And above all, we maintain open doors for all who need consolation and help. Augustine says those are the kind of things the innkeeper does. As I look at the good the Samaritan, those are the kind of things we see. So which character are you going to be today? Which one speaks to you? And what parts of the stories can, can, can you see because you're one character or another? Sometimes we feel like the attacked in the world, do we not? We feel like we've been beat up, left on the side of the road to die. Dayspring is a place where we can find hope, where we can find hospitality, where we can find care. Because sometimes we get to be the hero and rescue people out of ditch. But most times, we get to be the innkeeper. They're just caring, listening. Now, we never want to be the lawyer or the priest or the Levite, even though sometimes I have to admit I behave in those ways. Not on my better days. But sometimes my faith is no more effective than that as the lawyer. Most of us want to be the Samaritan, but rarely are we positioned to do that. We are most likely to play the role as individuals and as a church, the role of innkeeper. Caring for those that God brings to us and places before us, those who need us, that is a compelling place to be, just like Cleveland Heath is for Gail and I. God brings to our lives those who need hospitality and loving care in deeper ways than you'll ever find in a restaurant. Our role is to provide open doors and opportunities and open hearts for people. What makes, something, uh, what makes a church something other than a legacy of the kind of religion that the priest and the Levite practiced in this parable? It's when we've experienced God's love and we share that with others. So we become a place of hospitality. The importance of understanding this whole idea of where we identify and who we are is seen as Jesus reengages the lawyer after the story, after the parable. He says to the lawyer, which of these proved to be a neighbor? This is the eternal life question, don't forget. What does it take to be an eternal, inherit eternal life? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's the eternal life question. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Not who is a neighbor. But am I a neighbor? Jesus once again reverses the question. And who is my neighbor? Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the question. Who is a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? And so he moves the idea of neighbor from object to subject. It appears that it's hard to define neighbor. We can only be a neighbor or not be one. But it's hard to define. Because whatever the other needs is how we can be a neighbor. It's interesting, isn't it? The lawyer hasn't changed. He gets the answer right, but he's got it all wrong also. Which one proved a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. He cannot bring himself to say a Samaritan 
was a neighbor. He can't say the word Samaritan and neighbor in the same sentence yet. But Jesus is hospitable, offers hospitality. He doesn't condemn the lawyer and say, you got it all wrong. Jesus simply issues an invitation. Go and do likewise. Go and be a neighbor. That same hospitality and invitation is extended to the lawyer that he extends to us. Jesus says to us this morning, choose your role. Who do you see yourself being in this story today? From that, determine how you can be a neighbor. Whatever role you may have, how can you be a neighbor? Because that is the question of eternal life. Am I a neighbor? Amen.